I'm going to be reading, we're going to be considering James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. So I'm going to read, and if you have, your, if you have the Bible with you, follow along with me. God's word begins, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt, cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is, has been conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow Due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a first kind of first fruits to his creatures. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we read your word and we hear your voice. Lord, I just want to ask for your help this morning. We know that. We know we need to hear from you, and I pray that you would be in and amongst our midst this morning as I preach your word. I pray that you would inhabit the preaching. I pray that you would, you would work despite my many limitations and frailties. I pray that you would speak authoritatively. I pray that you would comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, Lord. And so, Lord, I ask that you would bless us this morning. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Right now, at this moment, today, for the first time in a long time, you can hear the pop of leather, the crack of bats, and the chatter of young men. Why? Because very recently, both pitchers and catchers have reported an honest-to-good, real baseball is now being played all throughout the valley, unless it's raining outside. I'm not sure. Um, it's spring training, but yet it's real baseball. It's one of my favorite times of the year. Baseball is one of my favorite hobbies. Baseball is the kind of sport that can be a hobby. It's not just for fans. You can study baseball and look at baseball. And when you see baseball and consider baseball, baseball is one of the quirkiest games there is. There are unique facets to baseball that do not exist in other sports. For example, the manager wears a uniform like the rest of the players. Could you imagine if a football coach did that? If he came out with a helmet and shoulder pads on? look ridiculous. Or a basketball coach wearing a tank top. But a baseball coach, a manager, wears a uniform just like the players. Another quirk is that every field has different dimensions. Yes, from each, between each, each base it's 90 feet, but the outfield has different dimensions. There are 30 different Major League Baseball teams and every one has a different dimension. Another quirk is that even though the games are nine innings, they, are, they vary in length wildly. The longest game ever played was in 2006. It was almost five hours. The shortest game was played in 1919, and it was almost one hour. 
So you never know what you're going to see in baseball. But in baseball, baseball, the quirkiest game that we have, one thing rises to the top as the quirkiest, and it's the distance between the pitching mound or the pitching rubber to home plate. Any baseball fan knows that that distance is 60 feet, 6 inches. Not 60 feet even, but 60 feet, 6 inches. So apparently, according to a baseball history website, prior to 1892, the pitching mound was 50 feet from home plate. Pitchers would have such a distinct advantage that the, the ball would get on the, on the batters before they would even have a chance to react. So... In 1893, they scooted the pitching mound back, and and they said, let's scoot it back 10 feet, from 50 feet to 60 feet, but the gentleman who wrote it down wrote 60 feet, 6 inches, and his 6 looked like, or his 0 looked like a 6. And so the distance is a mistake. The rubber was initially supposed to be 60 feet away, and instead, it's 60 feet, 6 inches. Why? Because somebody couldn't read his handwriting. Folks, handwriting matters. Misinterpret a digit and the American pastime has a quirky, funny little story. 60 feet, 6 inches. Misinterpret God and his intentions toward you, and your story is more than quirky. You go sideways. And you go sideways by more than just 6 inches. James wants this morning to speak directly to our tendency, even as Christians, our tendency to misinterpret God's intentions toward us. You know what? We have a hard time believing that God is good all the time. Now you might say, that's silly. That's juvenile. I know God is good all the time. I have this picture of a path and on that path I have in my living room a little message that says God is good all the time we might have those signs and those pictures up in our homes but it's one thing to have that hanging and it's another thing to sit in that same living room here having just received a call that yes indeed it is cancer is God good in that moment is God good all the time James wants us to to answer that question Yes. It's easy to believe that God is good when things are going well. It's difficult to believe that God is good when things are not. It's one thing to believe that God is good when you have a chorus of cash and congratulations coming to you from work, but it's quite another thing to, to, to believe God is good when joblessness is shouting in your ear. It's one thing to say and believe that God is good when you enjoy the cool breezes of family serenity, but quite another thing, when blowing, when in your home we have the tornado of strife spinning around. It's one thing to say that God is good when your efforts seem to blossom from everything you do, and quite another thing when failure chokes all your hopes away. It's one thing to say that God is good when you see the vibrant colors of hope and possibility shimmer around you, and quite another thing when depression takes hold and Everything is gray. In other words, it's easy to say and believe that God is good when things are going well and difficult to say and believe, even more believe, that God is good when things are going poorly. It is urgent for us 
to not misinterpret God. See, the key in having the correct perspective throughout trials and hardships is our view of God. It's not just enough, James says, for us to say that God is good all the time. No, we need to say something else. We need to say this with conviction, and we need this to burrow in our hearts so that when hardships come, we can hold on to this. It's this. God is good all the time to you. We need to personalize this. God is good to me all the time. If you're a Christian, that is always only true. God is good to me all the time. We're going to see this in three different movements this morning. We're going to see this in three different ways. We're going to see how God is good to us. The first thing James does is call us to love this always good God. Now, we talked last week about we talked last week and the week before about how trials work together. Trials is, trials is the way, one of the ways that the Lord has chosen to purify, grow, and mature His people. We are going to become who we're called to be in part through trials and by remaining steadfast. Steadfast means don't give up. Steadfast means hang in there. And it can be that you think, well, all I need to do is just grit my teeth and get on with it, gut it out and keep going. But that's not true. James highlights something for us to pay attention to in verse 12 that should light our way. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Without love, you will not remain steadfast. No one who will remain, no one remains steadfast to God without love for God. You can't stay loyal to someone that you do not love. You can't follow a God that you do not trust. You can't follow a God if you do not love him. It's one thing to say God is good in the moment as you face trials and tribulations, but if you do not love him, you have no reason to, to, to be steadfast. James says that those who remain steadfast will receive a crown of life. Love is not this fleeting feeling that comes and goes like the weather. Love is a choice, and the scriptures are full of reasons for us to choose to love him. And we see one implicit or explicit in verse 12. Look again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. How do we receive the crown of life? That's just another way of saying eternal life. Does our faithfulness purchase this crown? No. Does our fortitude earn this crown? No. The crown of life has been won by another. The crown of life that is ours is because our Lord wore a crown of thorns. He, the creator of all things, the author of all life, came to this land of sin and death and gave his life. The author of life died so that we might be able to receive the crown of life. We, people of death, have now an opportunity because of Jesus to be able to have the crown of life. As we know, death did not and could not conquer our king for long. He burst the clutches of death and won for us and for all who remain steadfast in him the crown of life. And so we can know for sure and for certain 
that we can, we, we, we can love him. We can love him and remain steadfast to him. See, if you do not love him, you will not remain steadfast to him. So tend to your own affections when it comes to the Lord. Tend to your own affections when it comes to the Lord. We can misunderstand him. He's not just up there in heaven as sort of our warden or our caretaker. He's our father that we're called to love. He's, he loves us. We'll get there in a moment. How could we not love this God who sent his son? You see, the way he loves his, his people is by reminding them of all that he has done for them in Jesus. And one day, he will be with us. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God, this we will hear this one day, is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The first step in keeping the right perspective about God is to love Him. The first step in not misinterpreting God is to love Him, to keep your mind focused on Him. The second step is to realize this. Our good God never tempts His people. Our good God never tempts His people. And we see this in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. See, here's what happens to everybody when they face hardship. When we face hardship, we zoom in on that hardship and can't see anything else. And sometimes we can convince ourselves that God is the one who is tempting us. The thinking can go like this. God is all-powerful. He is responsible for all things. This hardship is difficult. I have sinned because of this hardship. Therefore, God must have caused me to sin by sending this evil upon me. Right? Wrong, says James. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why? James, all, the, listen, we're never just told to do something or believe something without reason. And here we have reason again. I am being tempted by God. No one should say that. Why? Here's what James says. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what are we to make of this? We've already seen in verse 12 that God does indeed test his people. Right? Look at verse 12 again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under, under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. There are many examples in the Bible where God tests his people's allegiance. One example is in Genesis chapter 22, when God, when Abraham's long-awaited son, <coughs> Isaac, had come, God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. We read this just as Abraham was about to plunge his knife into his son. Abraham, Abraham, the angel of the Lord cried out, and he said, that's Abraham, here I am. 
He said, the angel of the Lord, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That is a test Abraham passed. Another test that was brought to the people of God. Another test was brought to the Israelites, and they failed in Exodus chapter 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. That's manna, if you know the story. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. The test was whether or not they'd get more than they would need for a day, whether they walk in my law or not. Most of them gathered up more than they needed, and when they woke up the next day, it was infested by maggots. God does indeed test his people. The people of Israel fail. Abraham succeeded. So how can we make sense on the one hand if we hear God saying, I do not tempt, and on the other hand, saying, God, recognizing God does indeed test. It begins when we make sense of verse 13. See, here's the key. Look again at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. That statement means this. It means that when we say that, we're saying God is sending evil things to me so that I might fail. You see that? God is sending evil things to me that I might fail. Could he stop evil? Yes. Why hasn't he? We don't know. God is sending evil things to us that we might fail. Now, here's the reality. If you have a misinterpretation of who God is, you might say, well, yeah, that's okay. That, that, that might be what he does. But then you believe that God wants you to fail. He doesn't want you to fail. God does not tempt people to sin. That's not how it works. But here, where do, then, then you might ask, well, where does the sin come from? It comes from us. Look at verse 14. Here's what happens. Here's the mechanics of how hardships morph into temptation. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has fully conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So why... Why is it that we, re- we experience hardship and we fail? It's not because God brought something to us we, that was evil. It was, it's, because, it's because instead that within us we have evil desires that lure us away and cause us to wander. In other words, the reason we are tempted is that we're apt to Desire things besides God. We got to see this. Otherwise, listen, we live in a world full of hardship. We live in a world full of trouble. James wants us not to have the perspective that God is trying to beat us down. Or that God is somehow against us going, beating us down. No, we already have seen in verses 2 through five, that God is eager and ready to help his people. Remember, we've seen this. If you've been here, you've noticed this. Verse two says, count it all joy. You can look up there. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Then he goes on to say, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God 
So here's, here's one way to respond to hardship. When hardship comes, you ask God for wisdom. God gives wisdom. Then you have the means by which to remain faithful. And you become, over time, James isn't talking about in a moment. Listen, we're all going to fail in all kinds of different moments. James is talking about a lifetime. A lifetime. If your pattern is to ask God for help and remain faithful, one day you will be complete and lacking nothing. But there is another way to respond. The other way to respond is that when hardship comes, you blame God, you fail, you sin, and your life is defined by death. And the way you pass or fail this test is by how you think of God. Is God there for your help or is he there for you to blame? Is God there for your help or is he there for you to blame? The difference is this. See, those who remain steadfast believe God is good all the time, even through trials. Those who are faithless and fall away blame God, especially in hardship. One of, the, one, of the, one of the prime ways you can tell who is a follower of Jesus is how they respond in times of trouble. In times of trouble, those who love Jesus follow him closely. Those who don't fall away and blame God and say, well, I tried God. He just didn't deliver. I, it wasn't, it wasn't my fault. I gave him every opportunity, but I didn't get this prayer answered or that prayer answered. No, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. We're talking kind of theoretically, so let's try to put some skin on this and just maybe tease this out a little bit. Now, I'm not, when we think about temptation, it's obvious when there are sinful temptations that we're to, to spurn, right? It's very clear. There are some temptations that are, that are just, they, you know, we don't want to lie, we don't want to steal, we don't want to kill, we don't want to murder, we don't want to, those things are clear. This isn't what we're talking about. When the hardships of life come, let's say, for example, chronic illness. That's a, that's a difficult test for anybody. I've dealt with chronic illness. I know what it's like to have those questions squirrel around. Chronic illness is a bewildering journey of doubt and fear and loneliness. It's a hardship. It's a test. James warns us against thinking, God must not love me. That's why I'm sick. Or I can't handle this. This is God's fault. Why doesn't he care? That's the temptation. See, and our desire can, can morph. Our desire can be, I need to get better more than anything else. Is it wrong to want to get better? No. But it is wrong to want to be, to feel better more than you want to please God. It's also wrong to say something like this. You must prove you love me by healing me. That's not how God works. God has proven his love by dying, by sending his son to die and rise and come back to get us one day. Hardship will come. Now, if you believe God is out to get you, you're going to blame him when it comes. And then your desire is all about healing. I say this to those of you who struggle with chronic disease. I, I say this with empathy in my heart. I, I say, 
It is very difficult to wake up each day and experience pain. Many of you, we can't even, many of you have, have pain and challenges I can't even put my arms around. But even for you, you must keep a right perspective about God. Otherwise, bitterness settles in. And bitterness, unaddressed, metastasizes. And you cease to be a person struggling with bitterness and become a bitter person. You become defined by bitterness. And the key is, you think God has let you down. God is out to get you. God does not concern himself with you. And so you experience hardship. You blame God. You fail. And then ultimately your life ends in eternal death. Now, how do we respond if we believe that God is good all the time to us? You're going to fight, and you're going to fight differently. You're going to hate the illness. It's not like we sit there and go, well, this is good. No, it's not. It's bad. We struggle with this chronic illness. We fight it. We hate it. There are some days we fail and we fall, but we keep fighting. We do not ask questions over and over and over. We, don't, we, we struggle with the bitterness. We refuse to believe that our pain is proof of God's abandonment. With this test we go through, we go to him and ask him all of our questions. We ask him all of our whys. We ask him everything that is bothering us. But we ask him also for wisdom in these next few minutes. We might only get wisdom for the next 10 minutes, and we probably won't get an answer to why, but we will get wisdom to have the ability to fight against disillusionment and heartache and remember that God is good and that he helps us in this moment. We must fight to keep perspective. And by, by asking and crying out and knowing that he gives generously. And there will be one day when we will receive the crown of life and there will be no more pain in that day. And in the end, we will have lived a faithful life by the strength that only he provides as we remember day by day that he is only always good to us. Then we will be able to say, as James, then James, what James says in verse 4 will be true of us. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why is it that some of us are being made perfect and complete through chronic illness? I don't know. Why is it that some of us are being made perfect and complete as we have this giant void in our life of loss? I don't know. But I do know that we must not measure God's feelings about us by how life seems to be going. Because if we do, we will blame God. Our God is always only good to us. We have no cause to blame our God for anything. Not only does God not deliver to us things so that we might fail, God is also something altogether different than we might expect. 
verse 17, our God, our good God is always generous to his people. See, James isn't, 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 he's not, he's not happy with just us believing that God doesn't tempt us. He also wants us to recognize something else, and that's in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Do not skip over these words. Let them soak in. How many good gifts that we've received are from him? All of them. Every. Every is a massive word. Every is a word that has no exceptions. Everything good and perfect has come to you from God. Think about that. Everything. So whatever you have, whenever you have experienced any kind of good gift, that has come directly from God to you. It's come down, James says, from the Father of lights, referencing God in his creative power who hung the stars and the moon and the sun. And as they go about their appointed rounds and change, he's different. With him, there are, is no variation or shadow due to change. He, the Father of lights, the one who created all things, does not change. And what does he not change? What does James want us to understand doesn't change? His disposition toward us to give good things. God is good all the time to us. And that will not change. That cannot change. Because God does not change. Do you see that? It's tempting as Christians to think God is good to me when I obey. False. God is always good. It's tempting to believe that, well, I sin, so this is God's fault. False. God is always good. God never changes, and he is always good. Everything good that we've received has come down to us from God. See, when we face hardship, our eyes zoom in on that one area, and we forget all the other gifts that we've received from his hand. I decided yesterday to make a partial catalog of the good things that I experienced from God yesterday from about 6.39 to 8.30 in the morning. First thing I experienced that was a blessing was the snooze bar. That went off. I utilized it. Bam. That's a blessing from God. Then I woke up. Another blessing. I could get up. That's a blessing. I was able to breathe. That's a blessing. My internal organs seem to be fine. That's wonderful. I was greeted by two dogs who think I'm the best. My kids were quiet because they were asleep. The house was quiet, and I can walk through the house, and it's quiet. I love my kids, but they were asleep, and that was a blessing. It was raining. That's a blessing for me. I had clothes to wear. I woke up inside. I wasn't outside wet. I didn't sleep on the ground. I slept in a bed. My eyes are bad, but God has provided wisdom to doctors to make it to where I can wear contacts to correct my vision. I was a little groggy, so I went and got this magic bean <laughs> that God has given to wake me up. I realized, man, my legs are sore, but I remembered, oh, my wife, who I've been blessed to be with for 23 years. We went on a hike yesterday. 
And we got to see God's wonderful creation in the Superstition Mountains. That was a blast. And then I think, okay, great. I'm going to this men's breakfast, and I get out, my car starts. I get there, there's 50 other guys there who love Jesus and want to follow him. And we had bacon. We had bacon. And so God gives us, God gave me taste buds to taste bacon, right? It, God could have just said, listen, let's, let's not focus on eating. Let's have gruel. You slurp it down, and then, you know, no. God's given us taste buds. Every time you've ever tasted something and you say, wow, that's good, that's from God. We all have hardships, but our blessings outnumber our hardships. And we must not be so myopic as to see only our hardships. We have many, 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 many more blessings. God is good to us all the time. God is good to us all the time, and we must be sensible to the blessings and not go about ignorant and presuming that we're owed all kinds of things. God is good to us all the time because here's what happens. We're a people who are apt to remember the slights and what we miss out on. And so when we don't get something we, say, we think we received, it's like, what? We think we owed. It's like, what's going on? What's wrong with the universe? Or the other side of it is when, we, when we're blessed with something, we think, yeah, that's the way it should be. It's backwards. God is good all the time. He is good all the time. All the time. And the height of his goodness is seen in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth in the scriptures always means the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, he brought us forth by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do you see what he's highlighting here, James? James is saying, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian because God said, I'm going to bring you forth to make you a Christian, to bless you. Not because you're worth it, not because you obeyed, not because you prayed the right way, raised a hand, or, or were baptized. He brought you forth because he decided to bring you forth. There is nothing in you or me that has caused him to say, I will bring you forth. Instead, what he did as a good God is decided in his sovereign plan to bring us forth because he is good. Of his own will, he decided to bring us forth from death into life, from darkness into light. Why? Because God is good. And this is what, this is, James, James is that book that is very easy to understand and very hard to apply. It's super easy for me to stand up here and say, listen, in hardships, don't say that God's not good. Really easy. But I recognize how very hard it is in the moment. All of us know what it's like to face something that we don't think we can handle that feels so big and we feel so lost. All of us know that feeling. James is just getting us to see that God is not absent. God is there. God is not giving you things so that you might fail. God is eager to help. And may we not misinterpret him. May we not misinterpret him. God is good 
all the time to you. Are you misinterpreting God right now? Some of you might be because you're not following Jesus and you think that it's better for you to go your own way by yourself. Here's what you need to understand. God is good for anyone. God is good to anyone. And God is good to anyone who would come to him and ask for forgiveness. James is a book written by a Christian to other Christians so that they might walk faithfully and follow him, follow him truly. His concern is that Christians look like followers of Jesus and not hypocrites. I can tell you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I can tell you as a Christian, not all of, we're just not going to be perfect. I'm not perfect. My kids see I'm not perfect. My God is perfect. And so I follow him. And so if you're not a Christian, talk to somebody you know who is. And you can experience this blessing. We who are followers of Jesus, we must not misinterpret God. We must not. We must not. He is only always good to us. Now, you might not be able to see how in this moment. For some of you, you might be trapped in what you feel like is a challenge that cannot be navigated. God says, I have wisdom for that. Cry out to me. God says, call out to me, and I will help you. He is eager to help. He is ready to help, because God is good to us all the time. Let's pray. Lord, I I pray for, Lord, I I just want to lift up every person in this room who came in with a heavy heart. There's probably a hundred different reasons. People are lugging in heavy hearts this morning. And I pray that as they heard your word preached, I pray that you would, I pray that they (laughs) they don't feel like, oh my gosh, he just doesn't get it, or it's just, you know, this is not helpful. Lord, I pray that you would comfort, Lord, those who are heavy laden. I pray that you would help them to see your goodness, Lord. But I also pray that you would provide them a way of escape in their trials and their hardships. I pray that you would deliver them, Lord. I pray that you would keep them. I pray that you would give them strength to navigate and make it through. Lord, I pray that if there are those here who are blaming you for any kind of failure or mistake or disappointment, Lord, I pray that they would turn from that and come and follow you. Lord, we're grateful that you have called us by your own will. You've called us forth. And so, Lord, may we be amongst those who are steadfast, following you all of our days, one day, so that we might one day be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.